Good morning. Hey, here we go. Uh, welcome. And special welcome if any of you are new or just visiting with us. Um, we're always so glad to have you guys join us. Um, and yeah, we'll hope that you would stick around afterwards and get to know some people. Um, we're just always thankful to have new people come and worship with us. Okay, so I'm one of the pastors here. My name is Julie. And if you've been with us throughout the summer, you know that we've been in a sermon series on the book of Philippians. Um, and we're getting more towards the end of it, but I wanted to remind us a little bit of what some of the big themes that are in the letter, because I think the passage we're going to look at today often tends to get separated from the rest of the book, uh, but I want us to make sure we're remembering the context of it and sticking with kind of the themes we've already talked about. So one of the big themes that has come up is that we as believers in Jesus are citizens of heaven and not of earth. So Zach preached on that several weeks ago, um, but that idea that when we choose to follow Jesus, that our home is no longer here. Our home is in heaven, and we are made new, we're new, made new citizens of another place. We don't belong to the world, but we belong to Jesus and the new world that he's someday going to bring into completeness. And while we wait for Jesus to come back and make everything new, we're kind of in this weird tension where we're citizens of somewhere that we're not actually living. We don't totally belong here, and we're, in a, uh, we're experiencing some of those tensions in our daily lives. And in the passage we're going to look at today, I think what's happening is Paul's giving some instructions on what it looks like to live as citizens of heaven, even while we are still here on earth. So it's sort of like, this is a, imagine that if, you know, travel restrictions were not a thing. Imagine you moved to Australia and you became a citizen there. You would be a citizen of Australia and there are a lot of similarities between the US and Australia, right? We speak English. Um, there's different things that it kind of is like, there's similarities across the culture. And yet there's some pretty big differences. And I'm betting that if you moved there, people would be able to tell pretty quickly that you were an American citizen at one point. And you might need some instructions on how to live in the way that an Australian citizen would live. Things like, you might need some instructions on how to drive on the other side of the road. I know I certainly would. Uh, and you might need instructions about some of the slang and different terms. If you've ever listened to someone from Australia speak, sometimes they say things and I'm like, I have no idea what that means, or I have to look it up. Apparently they really like to shorten things and abbreviate them. And so you might need some instructions about what it would look like for you to live as an Australian citizen, even though you're so kind of ingrained in some of the cultural things of being an American citizen. So Paul's gonna give us some instructions today about what it looks like to live as citizens of heaven. So I'm going to read the passage and pray for us, and then we will jump into some of those right there. So Philippians 4, 4 through 9. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. 
Father, we praise you that you have given us your word uh, through the Holy Spirit and that it strengthens us to follow you. It leads us into deeper paths of godliness so that we might be made mature and fully equipped for every good work that you have for us. So thank you, Lord, for this time this morning to study uh, and hear from you. And we ask that you would speak this morning to all of us. In your name we pray. Amen. So I mentioned earlier, if you've heard this passage before, it's often kind of used to talk about anxiety. And it's not that it's not about anxiety, but I think when we put it in the context of remembering the themes that are coming through the letter of Philippians, um, we're going to see that there's a little bit more to it. It wasn't written in a vacuum, um, and it wasn't just a singular study about anxiety. However, if anxiety is something you're really dealing with, and you're like, oh man, I really was hoping that you were going to talk more about that today, uh, we did do a sermon, a single sermon on anxiety earlier this spring. So you can go back online or on our podcast and check that out if that's something that um, you'd really like to talk about. Or always, you can always come find me or Joel if you want to talk more one-on-one about something like that. But as I said, this is a a part of the larger themes and um, lessons and things that Paul is kind of drawing through the letter. So looking back at the very beginning of the letter, Paul says that he's confident that he, God, who has begun a good work in us, is going to carry it on to completion until the day of Christ. He also prays in chapter 1 saying, I pray that your love will keep on growing and that you will fully know and understand how to make the right choices that you will still be pure and innocent when Christ returns. And until that day, Jesus Christ will keep you doing good deeds that bring glory and praise to God. So that's the intention Paul sets right at the beginning of the letter. He says, this is what I want for you. I want you to continue to grow in understanding the love of Christ and that that would grow so deep in you that it would impact you in all of your ways and in all of the things that you do in your life. So these commands that he gives in chapter 4, they're an extension of that hope that Paul has for everybody uh, who's reading this letter or hearing it. He wants us to be able to rejoice in suffering, even as he does in prison. He wants us to be able to imitate Christ's love uh, and sacrifice and live like citizens of heaven. All of these things should sound familiar. These are the things that we've kind of pointed out or looked at throughout this sermon series. And here at the end, Paul is giving them some things now that are going to form them in to the type of person who is a citizen of heaven. Not that you earn this citizenship from heaven. We talked about that earlier. This is something that is given to us through Christ. But there are things that are going to help form us into people who are like citizens of heaven. So kind of like that Australia example. There are things that you could learn or practice or do that would make you sound more Australian, look more Australian, instead of um, being formed by kind of the habits that you grew up in. So that's what we're going to be looking at today, is we're going to look at habits that form us. And these habits might help alleviate some anxiety, as we talked about uh, in the verse, and that's definitely an added bonus. But I think, really, Paul is concerned about what kind of habits we're setting for ourselves, because these habits are going to impact who we are and how we act. So let's look at the first one. First of all, he says, rejoice. And you kind of have to love how straightforward Paul is here. He just says, rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. And even though it's straightforward, uh, and it sounds simple enough, I think we can all understand that this is a harder command to practice or to really feel in our daily lives. And one thing that I think is helpful to kind of, as we think about this command, is to translate a little bit 
um, from maybe how we might read it in our modern eyes, thinking, oh, he's telling us I need to feel happy, to thinking about what would the readers of the Philippians, um, what would they have thought when Paul is telling them to rejoice? So like I said, I think we tend to think, oh, this is about happiness. This is about me feeling something or having something well up inside of me that I just can't help it. And sometimes that comes across as, um, you know, faking it and being like, well, as a Christian, I'm told to rejoice, so I'm just going to pretend I'm feeling great even when I'm really not. Or sometimes it might look like trying to paste a happy thing onto something that's not so happy and trying to always find the positive spin. And let's be honest, neither of these things are particularly helpful. Um, Trying to always make yourself happy is exhausting. Trying to always find the things that are going to spark joy in you, to use that phrase, is kind of exhausting after a while. You're chasing after something that is not going to last. And just pretending that you're happy is also exhausting because you're never really letting people in to see your true self um, and to really wrestle with some of the things that are hard and that may not uh, always be joyful. And I don't think that just being happy is what Paul is calling us to here. So if you think about what the Philippians may have known or thought about, things that were common in their culture and in their experience, one scholar talks about how uh, this call to rejoice is probably more about a call to gather together as a group and to worship Jesus. So in Paul's time period, um, there were a lot of different gods and goddesses that people worshipped. And they would have specific holidays or, um, I don't know, sort of like parades or celebrations very publicly for these gods and goddesses. It sort of made me think about how um, I grew up in a town called De Pere, and every summer we had Celebrate De Pere, which was just a big festival where, I'm not sure, I guess we were celebrating the city and celebrating that it was there. Um, and I was talking with Joel about this, and he's from northern Minnesota, and he shared that in his town it was ox cart days. I don't know if I've ever heard anything more like Minnesotan from, uh, as a holiday. And he also said that one of the towns nearby him had potato days, which I honestly kind of want to attend. I really like potatoes. But just like that, like holidays and festivals that people had, they would have these holidays and festivals around these gods and goddesses. So maybe they had Celebrate Artemis Day, or um, instead of Oxcart Days, they had Aphrodite Days, or something like that, where they would all gather together and worship this god or goddess. And Paul is telling the Philippians, he's calling them to continue gathering together, but to worship and celebrate Jesus instead of any of these gods or goddesses that would have been around them in the culture. He wants them to publicly gather each week to celebrate and worship Jesus. And when we think about coming to church, which is essentially what he's calling them to do, I think we can often get in the mindset of, well, this is just something I do. Uh, It's a habit that I have that maybe you grew up doing it. Maybe it's something that you've started doing later in life. But it can kind of just become like, this is just a part of my routine. I just go. Or maybe you go because you get to connect with people afterwards and you love the community aspect of it. Whatever it is, it can kind of just become something we don't think that hard about doing. And I think especially coming out of COVID, where we weren't always able to gather or gathering looked different, it can kind of feel like, well, was that really all that important? You know, we got by without doing it for a while when we couldn't. And so does it really matter that I come and gather with other people? And I think that Paul is saying that there's something about gathering. It's not that you have to or that you won't be joyful, but he's saying there's something about gathering with other people 
publicly to worship Jesus that is going to bring about that joy in us. It reminds us that our God is real. It reminds us that we're not alone in this journey of trying to follow Jesus, trying to imitate him, trying to love sacrificially. It reminds us that there are other people who are doing it together with us, and we don't have to feel alone in the process. Uh, there's a scholar, N.T. Wright, he says, celebrating Jesus as Lord encourages and strengthens loyalty and obedience to him. And I think that that's true just because we see there are other people following Jesus too. This God is worth following. This is something that not just our little small group of people is doing, but there are people all over the world who weekly gather to celebrate Jesus and to remind ourselves why we follow him to remind ourselves that he willingly died and rose again for us, and that we are loved unconditionally by him. And I think especially when you're in difficult circumstances, corporate worship can help carry you along in that process. So if you're really not feeling joyful, if you're dealing with something difficult, if you're having anxiety, coming together and seeing other people worship Jesus can help carry you along in that, in that process of feeling maybe not so joyful or not so trusting in Jesus. And it's kind of ironic that we just sang it as well, uh, that song, because that is the song that for me always reminds me of that fact. So it's not personally one of my favorite songs, and I know a lot of people, it's like their absolute favorite, and so people get a little offended when I say that. But it's actually helpful, I think, for me that it's not one of my favorites, because whenever we sing that song, and I'm at worship, it's helpful for me to look around or just to listen to everybody else singing along with me. And as I do that, I'm reminded that everybody here is facing difficult circumstances at different times. And yet you're willing to come. You continue to show up to worship Jesus. And because of what Jesus did, because of the way that he made us citizens of heaven, that he's making us new, um, that he has forgiven us and given us new life in him, we can say, it is well with my soul. And for me to be able to hear and see other people knowing what they're going through or what they have gone through, be able to stand up and say that and to sing it passionately and to worship Jesus in that way, it's honestly almost more moving for me to listen to all of you during that song than it is for me to sing it on my own. Because it reminds me that there, our God is worth worshiping. He has made it so that no matter the circumstances, we can rejoice and we can say, it is well with my soul. So sometimes when you're feeling discouraged, or maybe if you aren't feeling joyful, I almost encourage you to make an effort even more to be around people who are worshiping Jesus. Because just seeing their faith and their willingness to continue following him, even when life is difficult, can really help carry you and give you that hope and joy. I think there's another way that Paul is also thinking about this command to rejoice. And it connects back to um, what we call the Christ hymn in Philippians. So in Philippians 2, we've talked a lot about this part where Paul is likely taking from some kind of hymn or some kind of poem or something. And he talks about the sacrifice that Jesus made for us and how we are called then to lay down our interests for the interests of others so that we can follow him um, in his sacrifice. And this idea of rejoicing is actually tied to what he's talking about there and that idea of sacrificing for others. So I think the difference between how they might think about it and how we might think about it, so when we think about joy and trying to feel joyful, we think, okay, I've got to look inward, right? I've got to look at myself and see, okay, what things aren't bringing me joy? What can I switch out? Well, you know, what things do I need to process through that are going on in my life? 
And those are good things. I encourage you to still do those things. But this idea of rejoicing publicly and to follow the Christ hymn in Philippians calls us to not just look inward, but also to look upward to God and outward to others. So Moises Silva, who's got a commentary on Philippians, says it like this. He says, genuine Christian joy is not inward looking. It is not by concentrating on our need for happiness, but on the needs of others that we learn to rejoice. And so the apostles call the Philippians once again to look out, not for their own interests, but for the interests of others, and so to regard others as more important than themselves. So he's calling us, hey, if you're feeling stuck, if you're not feeling joyful, hey, maybe consider serving other people. Get out of your own head so much that you can actually look upward to the sacrifice that Jesus made for us, and then look outward to see the ways that you can sacrifice for others. And the practice of serving other people will actually bring us joy. It teaches us to rejoice, no matter our circumstances. We think of others as more important than ourselves, and we don't always get what we want to do. It actually helps teach us that joy can be found no matter what circumstances we're in. And it might be kind of a counterintuitive idea, because the common thought in people today is, well, I'm not going to do something unless it brings me joy. And if we're being honest, serving other people does not always sound like something that's going to bring me joy. Uh, and if you think about things like, yeah, people, the people serving in the nursery, even if you love kids and you're like, this is the thing, this is like, of any way I'm going to serve, this is the way I want to do it, there's still going to be things that you probably don't love about serving in the nursery, right? Dirty diapers, or if a kid is really having a hard time, or maybe you're just having a hard time, it's not always going to sound like something that's going to bring us joy. And yet, Paul is saying that when we practice these things, when we practice serving others first, thinking about other people's needs instead of only our own, it's actually going to bring us more joy. Because serving others the way that Christ has served us takes our minds off of ourselves and, again, puts it upward to Jesus and uh, outward to other other people who may be a part of the community or who aren't a part of the community. And there's an example in church history um, that's always kind of stuck with me around this idea. And it has to do with Martin Luther. And if you've heard of Martin Luther, you probably have heard of him mostly as that guy who had to do with the Reformation and had the theses and he nailed them to the door. Uh, And that's all true. But one part of his story that I don't always hear talked about uh, is that the struggle that he had, the times where he deeply struggled with his faith, before he got to the point where he um, kind of had those realizations and took those steps of reformation. And so before all of that, he was a monk, and he had this period of time where he deeply struggled with his faith. He went through, uh, you could call it a crisis of faith, you could maybe call it deconstructing. I think that's what we, we, the phrase that we often like to use now. He went through a phase of deconstructing his own faith. And at the time, the guy who was like kind of his supervisor, or who was uh, his mentor, Instead of just saying, like, oh, you're really struggling, so let's just maybe put you over here on the sideline while um, I help out these other people who, you know, are maybe ready to take bigger steps. Instead, he made a bold move, and he said, you know what I think you should do while you're struggling, while you're deconstructing your faith? I think you should continue to serve others. I think you should start teaching. Again, bold move, not saying that would work in every situation, uh, but in this situation, it did. Luther knew the truths of Scripture, And although he was internally wrestling with what that meant for his life and for his heart, he began preparing lectures. 
And it's actually through this study of scripture, this time of teaching and preparing and studying, is that's what really helped him clarify his faith. It was during that time that he really started to um, solidify some of his theology and the ways that he thought reform needed to take place and what he really believed. Which is something that sounds counterintuitive again, right? What this person who's really struggling with their faith, who's having a hard time rejoicing, it doesn't seem like the right move would be, okay, let's go have you serve other people, use your gifts, go teach. And yet that's what he did. And that's how he was able to find joy in scripture again, to find joy in God again. And I'm not saying that we all need to go out and start teaching classes. That's not the right answer for everybody. But I do think that sometimes when we feel anxious, when we feel stuck, when we feel not joyful, our thought is to, well, maybe I just need to take a break. Maybe I need to step back. I need to to just focus on myself. And I think this idea of turning and looking towards the the needs of others and serving others um, can actually help us bring more joy than just focusing on ourselves. And that's because these practices, these practices of gathering together and of serving others, are practices that will form us. They change who we are and how we think and how we relate to God and to one another. And they change us into people who are more joyful, regardless of our circumstances. Okay, so as part of rejoicing, Paul also calls us in the Philippians to pray. He says, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And Paul here actually uses four different words when he's talking about prayer. He says, prayer, petition, thanksgiving, and then he talks about requests. And when most people get to this passage, I think because we all struggle with anxiety, we're like, okay, what do I have to do to not be anxious? I have to do, practice these four different types of prayer, and I have to do it uh, you know, all the time, and I need to figure out what it's going to be like, what's the equation, how can I get out of this anxiety? And I think it's great to practice these different types of prayer. Gratitude is a great way to help us get out of anxiety. But I don't think that this passage is just about checking boxes to make sure we feel better. It's not some kind of magic formula. But it does form us. These habits, the habit of prayer, is going to form us into people who maybe are less anxious. We present our request to God, not just as something to like get something in return, right? I'm going to check the boxes so that I can get peace from God. But we pray to God to remind us that he is good, that he loves us, and that he is in control so that we could actually be formed by our prayers. Just the act of praying, when done over time, can help form us into people who believe those things are true of God and who are joyful. And I know that for a lot of us, those two things, uh, that God cares about us and that God is in control, can be difficult to believe, especially in difficult situations. Uh, And the Philippians were definitely in a difficult situation. And so if that's something that you've been, you know, you're like, I pray all the time and God doesn't seem to be answering these things, or I'm not feeling like God is in control or that he's good. Uh, There's a specific story that I have that has kind of helped me um, reframe some of that thinking. So uh, Krista Schroeder, who's one of our leadership team members, um, she once shared with me in a season where she was feeling like, I don't feel like my prayers really make much of a difference, or I don't really feel like God's listening, um, or that he cares all that much. She shared that she came across a passage in Revelation 5 that really helped her kind of reframe it and help keep her in the habit of prayer. So Revelation 5, uh, verse 8 says, 
And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. So Revelation is this kind of scene of God on the throne, of um, up in our picture of what heaven is like. And this small detail that I think I'd always skipped past is something that really stuck stuck out to her. This idea that in this throne room where God is, there are these golden bowls, or at least this is how it's described to us, these golden bowls that are full of incense, and somehow that incense is actually the prayers of God's people. I personally uh, love literary devices and images, and I tend to learn better through visual uh, aspects than just kind of through logic, or if someone just told me, you need to believe that God cares about you because of this. These kind of images are helpful for me, and so if they're helpful for you, I share it in hopes that when you pray, maybe thinking about that idea of that golden bowl full of incense or something that smells pleasing. Incense does not smell pleasing to me, Um, but if there's something else for you, maybe it's a a candle or, I don't know, freshly baked bread, whatever it is that to you is this pleasing smell. Imagine that if you're like, oh, incense, that doesn't, I don't like that. Um, But it's something that's pleasing to God. And so this image was so helpful to me. I actually, um, I was at Target a couple days later, and I found this candle that has kind of like a gold bowl around it. And so I I picked it up and gave it to Krista. And when I reached out to her and asked her if I could share this story or this example, um, she sent me this picture back. And she said that it's been really helpful for her um, to continue to have that image that she can think about when she's struggling to believe that God cares or listens to her prayers. And she said that sometimes when I'm really praying, I'll light the candle. She said, I love the visual. And when she's gone through particularly difficult times, she said she's actually taken written down prayer requests on tiny pieces of paper uh, and burned them in the candle as kind of a way to give her that image that her prayers are in front of God. He hears them, and it's pleasing to him to have her pray. So if you're struggling to remember that God cares, that he actually wants to hear your prayers, you can maybe picture that golden bowl. Remember that God wants to hear from us. It's pleasing to him. And this image actually works if you're struggling to believe that God is in control as well. Because God in that throne room in Revelation 5 uh, actually shows a picture of God being completely in control. He has already won the victory. And there are people there praising him and worshiping him. So verses 11 and 12 say, Then I looked, this is uh, John who's having the vision, I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders, and in a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. So we see God is worthy. He has all power, all wealth, all wisdom, all strength. He deserves all of the honor and glory and praise. And it's not just one person saying that. It's thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000 angels saying that. I don't even know. I can't do math that high. Uh, And in verse 13, it goes on to say, Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. So one day all creation will be like this. God is in control and he is worthy and we are not the only ones gathering to worship him. He is the best person for us to gather to worship. So if you're struggling to pray, try picturing that throne room. 
Picture the praise of God that is already happening. This is not something you have to muster up, something that you have to create. There are people praising God all over the world, and they're in heaven. God is already worthy of praise. He is already um, being praised by anyone and everyone. So as we practice this, as we practice praying and remembering that God is in control and that he loves us, this practice will form us. It'll change us into people who trust God, that when troubles come, it will not bring us to anxiety immediately. And even if it does, that we know we can go to God, that he is in control and that he loves us. And as we rejoice and as we pray, Paul has one more thing he calls us to do, and that is to be mindful. Or if you are uh, someone who likes to practice mindfulness, you can think of it in that way, to practice mindfulness. In verse 8 and 9, he says, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, or praiseworthy, think about those things. Because again, our thoughts actually form us. They change us, and they're habits that change who we are and how we think about the world. It it alters our behaviors and our feelings, and that alters our relationships. It has quite a big uh, cascading effect. And the average person has more than 30,000 thoughts a day, And whatever you think, that's going to directly impact how you feel and how you behave. And again, this is something that Paul's culture would have been pretty familiar with. The ancient Greeks at the time were really into Stoicism, um, which was a philosophy, kind of had three main pillars or ideas. Uh, So this idea of knowing some things are out of our control, uh, understanding that the things that upset us, that's uh, our judgments about these things, our thoughts, our behaviors, And then lastly, that we must act with virtue at every moment. So basically their idea was, we know that our thoughts that we're having, they impact who we are and what we do and how we behave. And so we want to make sure that the thoughts that we are having are positive ones. And the language that Paul uses here is actually language that was more common to culture than it was to scripture. This idea of pure and lovely and admirable, excellence, praiseworthy, all of those things were things that the people in his culture would have been like, yeah, we, we've heard that. We know that that's something that uh, people like to do. But Paul calls them to a different type of citizenship. Again, we're not citizens of the world. He's not calling them to be better Greeks. He's calling them to be citizens of heaven. He takes a common idea from culture, and then he centers it around Jesus. And in verse 7, he says, And the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So this cultural trend that Paul found himself in is not all that different, as I said before, to this idea of mindfulness, or maybe meditation is another word that people use. And I looked it up because I was curious, and since 2012, the number of people currently who practice meditation has tripled. And the top 10 most popular meditation apps have generated 195 million in sales in one year. And that was in 2019. So that was like even pre-pandemic, you guys. I'm sure it went up from there. Um, And the value of the meditation market is set to double by 2022. And I have to imagine that that's probably, again, even higher based on the, the experiences we've all had in the last few years. And like I said, I'm not really that surprised, right? People are stressed. It's hard to live in a broken world. It's hard to constantly uh, see brokenness in ourselves and in those around us and just in systems in the world and everything going on around us. It's understandable that anxiety and depression are high and that a lot of people are feeling that. But as Paul has been telling us, 
meditation is much more than just a way to become less anxious. In another one of his letters, Paul says this. He says, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, right? Don't be citizens of earth, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Be made new. Be made new even in the way that you think uh, and challenge those thoughts to be transformed. He doesn't want us to be conformed to the world around us and to their practices and their habits because that's not where you're a citizen of anymore. He wants you to be transformed into a pattern of worship, of sacrifice, right? As we talked about with this Christ hymn, of looking to others' interests instead of your own, of practicing following Jesus by following his example. And by doing this and by practicing this mindfulness, it'll actually form us into somebody who lives as a citizen of heaven. And I thought I would just give some examples of what this could look like practically, because if, you're, if you've never done meditation, uh, it can be difficult to start or difficult to know what does that even look like. Or if you do practice meditation, but you've been doing it um, kind of just in the way that the culture talks about it, it can be difficult to try and think, what could I do to, sh- to just shift this slightly so that it's centered around Jesus instead of around maybe myself or just feeling better? So I'm going to give a bunch of examples on the next slide. So here we go. Uh, the first one, to reduce unhelpful content. And I get that for everybody, that's going to be different. But if there are things that send you into a thought spiral that is negative or into a thought spiral that is one where you're not believing that God is in control or that he is good, maybe that's the news. Um, I know a lot of people have really had to cut back how much news they're taking in over the last couple of years. Maybe it's uh, social media. The comparison game is strong and huge in social media. It can be difficult to be on that all the time. Whatever it is for you, think about ways you can reduce taking in some of that unhelpful things, those things that are going to help make you focus not on what's right or true or excellence or praiseworthy, but on the things that are not, the things that are anxiety-producing or depressing or um, yeah, just unhelpful for you. The second one idea was to reduce barriers. So make it easy to do. Whatever that looks like for you, um, I don't remember which book this is from, that one of the books about like forming habits, they talk about just making it as easy as possible to do the thing you want to do. So if your goal is, I'm going to read the Bible more because that'll help me focus on things that are excellent and praiseworthy instead of focusing on other things, then make it the very first app that shows up when you open your phone. Or put a Bible in whatever room it is that you spend a lot of time in. Or put one in every room if you have multiple, right? Reduce the barriers that it's going to take for you to get there. If you are someone who is like, I'm going to get up every morning and I'm going to like pray and I'm going to spend time thinking about those positive, those things that are centered around Jesus, but you are not a morning person, think about maybe doing it at a different time of the day, right? Work with yourself a little bit. Make it easier for yourself. And then other ideas, read the same passage of scripture every day for a week, right? If you want to meditate on something, it's going to mean you have to repeatedly put it in front of you to think about it, to pray about it, to come back to it and allow God to reveal it to you in new and different ways, right? Memorize scripture. I feel like this is one that we're not great at and yet we all want to be good at. So maybe that's something you you commit to. You're like, I'm going to memorize this verse. Start small, make it easy for yourself and it'll help you think about what's pure, what's lovely, what's good. 
Pray scripted prayers. If you're someone who really struggles with prayer, there are prayers in the Bible that you can use, right? Psalms or other, you know, Paul has lots of different prayers in his letters. Uh, In the Old Testament, people have prayers that they pray. Use those or use ones from church history or um, different curriculum. There's so many things out there that can help you use different things if you're feeling stuck. Practice gratitude, as I talked about earlier, that can be super helpful um, in rejoicing and in letting go of some anxiety. Um, And then lastly, practice silence, which again, I think can be difficult in our culture. We like to fill our days with information and noise, and sometimes you just need to let that go so you can just be with God. So whatever it is for you, (laughs) those are just some ideas, because I like to have ideas or hear what other people are doing to help me get started. You've got to figure out what does it look like for you to focus on those things, to think about what's excellent and praiseworthy, instead of being stuck on some of the things that are not. And as a reminder, all of these things, they're not just a life hack, right? I think a lot of people use meditation in our culture as kind of like a a life hack to help feel less anxious or to be more productive at work or to help them fall asleep or whatever it is. But our God is so much bigger than that. This is not just about checking things off a list, being a better citizen of heaven, or feeling less anxious. Because all of these things, when we do all of these things, they they bring us closer to God, and that's the goal. Jenny Allen, in her book, um, Get Out of Your Head, says, when we think thoughts that lead to life and peace, we don't just get better thoughts, we get more of God. And that's the goal. We're not doing this just to be better people, but we're doing this to be experience Jesus, to be formed into somebody who follows him more closely and is... um, can understand his love and his, con- his control over all things, that he is good, that he is excellent, that he is praiseworthy. So we're not just doing this to, to feel better. We're doing this to follow Jesus more closely. And that's, I think, what Paul wants for us too, right? He, in Philippians earlier, he talks about how, um, for him, whatever was gains to him in the past, he now considers a loss for the sake of Christ, For him, anything else in the world, all of these things that could make us feel better or do better in life, have more success, whatever it is, none of that mattered to him compared to what he says is the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. And that's true for us as well. And I think sometimes we need to be reminded that that's what it's about. Coming to church, gathering together, being joyful, serving one another, praying, all of these things are not just about being good Christians. They're not just about feeling better ourselves, but they're about knowing Jesus. As Paul says, he says, I want to know Christ, yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his suffering, becoming like him in death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. And I'll give you a little bit of a spoiler. As he goes on in the letter, I think this is probably in next week's sermon, he says, I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. And you can guess, it's Christ. Knowing Christ for him is the ultimate thing. It surpasses all other worth that we could potentially get from other things in life. And so that's what he calls us to do. All of these things, this week's passage might have felt like, oh, there's just a lot of things I need to go and do now. But the honest truth is that it's just a call to know Jesus. It's a call to focus on him, to allow him to be the center of your life, the thing that transforms you instead of the things around us in the world. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we're actually going to head into a time of worship and communion together. So we're actually going to get to practice it right right away, which is kind of great. 
Um, and communion is one of those ways that we can together remember Christ's death and resurrection, that he was willing to sacrifice for us, that he was willing to give everything in order that we would have life through knowing him. And so as we take communion uh, today, I just encourage you to reflect on that and to think about the ways that you could draw near to Christ this week, whether that's through gathering with people, whether that's through prayer or being mindful, whatever it is, that we could know him and know his surpassing worth. So please pray with me. Lord, we thank you that you were willing to give so much of yourself, that you came down uh, from heaven to be with us, to be one of us, and then also to die and rise again so that we could have new life in you. And Lord, I just pray that as we um, have experienced your word this morning and as we experience you in worship and communion, that you would not leave us um, unchanged, that you would move us, that you would draw us near to you and give us a desire that shows us that you really are the thing that gives all surpassing worth. Nothing else in our life, no other pressing things that feel so immediate uh, are as immediate as it is for us to know you and to worship you and to love you. So Lord, we thank you for the sacrifice that you made for us, and we just ask that you would give us the courage and the strength to do that for others as well. In your name we pray. Amen.